All right, well, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, we are grateful to be able to gather uh, again and just uh, celebrate the Lord's Day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we think about the first coming of Jesus in light of Advent and, and cultivate a longing for that. We're thankful uh, for the meal that we will celebrate this morning, uh, or excuse me, this afternoon as well. Be with us, please, in this hour. Be with our children's Sunday school teachers as they sow seed uh, to implant and last a lifetime. Um, God, we pray that these aren't just perfunctory uh, uh, routine exercises, uh, but that you would help grow us with ordinary common grace, which is really anything but. So be with us over the next couple minutes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Josh, what's up, buddy? Okay, so if you um, are just now joining us, I like I got a hair somewhere on One of Shanti's ghost hairs. Anyways, uh, it, it dawned on me the other day. Someone was like, "Well, I only get to come to like every other third or fourth Sunday school." I was like, "Man, I bet you're lost, aren't you?" And they're like, "Yeah, yeah." But so that's kind of sad. But anyways, if if uh, if you have not been here, we have just finished up uh, what I've introduced as the conversion initiation paradigm. Um, it, can anyone summarize? Has anyone been here enough to be able to kind of summarize the paradigm, like what the what the takeaway from this particular paradigm is in terms of looking at some of these elements associated with salvation. Does anyone remember? Does anyone know? Or do I need to sketch it out briefly before I move on? Yeah. Uh, like in, in the New Testament, I guess, when it mentions like one, one aspect of the, the step, or not step, but the thing. Yeah, the elements. Yeah, one of the elements. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So it's a synecdoche. We understand it as a synecdoche, meaning a part of it uh, is understood to represent the whole, like check out my wheels or all hands on deck. Those are common synecdoches in regular language where we refer to particular things that are associated with more than just those particular things. Um, and, we, and we've been talking about uh, that there is this idea of coming out of a kingdom of darkness and coming into the kingdom of light that in the New Testament is generally associated with five things. Now, those are the five elements that we've been talking about, and in fact, they can even be used interchangeably in many cases like we've seen. We'll see a little bit more of that, uh, a little bit more of that today, uh, but we're basically going to move past this. So let me just reread the summary, and then I'm moving past the conversion initiation paradigm. Then I'm going to just mention text so that people don't freak out when we go to 1 Peter 3, and it's a little baptism, which now saves you. <gasps> we laid a paradigm here. We have a conversion initiation paradigm that says, um, uh, well, here, here's what it says. The primary elements associated with transitioning from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light assume the presence of the others and therefore can be used to represent the others as well as what they accomplish in the conversion process. And this is crucial right here. It is the mistake of the hyper-proof texter and overly zealous systematic theologian to view every verse mentioning these elements and or their results as providing an ultra-specific formula for securing salvation or justification, as opposed to simply describing the fundamental elements that were inseparably associated with the process of turning from vain idols to the living God. Pause, and let me just say, if you forget everything else about this paradigm, 
Just try to remember the marriage illustration from Stein. If he gives, he says, well, if someone were to ask me when I was married, well, would it have been when we put rings on our fingers? Would it, when, would it have been when we said, I do? When, when we kiss? When the preacher pronounces man and wife? Would it be when the marriage certificate got signed? Would it be when we consummated the marriage? Like what, at what, tell me exactly when you got, and, and the idea is that all of these things are associated with one act and they're not supposed to be pried apart. Now I'm not saying there's no answer. Okay, I'm not saying there's no answer, but it is the overly zealous systematic theologian or the hyper proof texter that sees all these, these five elements, which remember confession, belief, slash faith, repentance, baptism, and regeneration or the uh, giving of the Holy Spirit. Those are the five things, that, the elements that we see used um, interchangeably here. Um, and, and, and to think whenever you see these elements leading to something that this is the necessary and sufficient specific formula to get right before God is just a misreading of the Bible is what I'm saying. So how do you, but isn't there an answer though? Isn't there an answer? Um, yes, I, I do think there is an answer. Questions about the bare minimum necessary for salvation. So just pause. Questions like, what's the bare minimum you have to do or believe to get in? Okay, which is a question no one was asking in Paul's day. Do you want to follow Jesus? Absolutely, I'm all in. Let's be baptized. No. What would you make of that person? You might think that they don't really want to follow Jesus. We are in a different time now, circumstantially, historically, but back then they didn't have those kind of confusions. Okay, questions no one was asking during Paul's ministry. So questions about the bare minimum or questions about the precise causal relationships between the elements of the conversion process how should we determine those? Where do we get our fine-tuned systematic theology about exactly what it takes to be right before God? I'm suggesting these five, combination of these five things. Whoa, as I don't, as I hope to not fall over. Texts that speak directly to the nature of justification and salvation themselves. Not the elements that are just happen to be in them, but what they fundamentally are. Two, texts that speak directly to the nature and purpose of the elements involved in conversion, not simply mentioning them in a list. Three, a robust understanding of God's role in the salvation process. Four, a consistent biblical theology of sin and its remedy. And five, New Testament examples of those saved without certain elements or condemned despite having them. Um, if you would, open with me to Acts chapter 8 very briefly. This is a very, very compelling little account. We have the example, if you're going for the bare minimum conversation, um, you have the example, of course, of the thief on the cross, saved without baptism, if the Philippian jailer died of a heart attack uh, as he was rushed, yes, Asher. Bare minimum means the littlest amount required. Like what's the, what is the uh, foundational things that have to be done for something, right? The minimum and nothing else, no extra, you know? Um, that's the conversation about the minimum. Very good question. I want you to listen to... Um, this, so we have a couple of examples of someone, or at least one very clear example of someone being saved without being baptized. But here's an example of someone believing in some sense, and I would say being baptized, but still not in, on, the, on the conclusion of most commentators and acts, someone who's not in the kingdom of God. Simon the sorcerer. So Simon, um, there was a man named Simon. This is, I'm reading out of Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9. A guy named Simon. They all paid attention to him. 
He's got a lot of power. Uh, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news, blah, 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 13, even, listen, verse 13, even Simon believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Okay, so you have some kind of belief. That's what it says. It says he believed. It says he was baptized. Okay, and so now they're doing signs here, and the Spirit was given, and you jump down uh, to verse uh, 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. You might think this guy like still doesn't actually get it. Yet, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So he remembered how nice it was to be the really powerful person back from earlier in the passage. Everyone said, look, he's like, oh, wow, there's like, I can level up here. If I pay you, can you give me this ability? And listen to Peter's rebuke. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could attain the gift of God with money. You have neither part or lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What? But he was baptized, though. Okay, well, as we're going to see today, hopefully if we get far enough, simply undergoing the Christian rite of R-I-T-E, rite of baptism, does not somehow save you. Okay? So uh, I, I, I attacked that, the, 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 the account of Simon the sorcerer onto the end of this description right here, these five things, as an example of someone who, we got an example of someone who, was, who believed in some sense um, and, and, and was baptized, and nevertheless, not a believer. We have, we have examples of people like the thief on the cross who uh, were not baptized, and yet, of course, Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, so that is the paradigm. I am moving on from that. We will address some more of these things as we move through. We're going to look at some of these texts, some of the challenging texts. But I'm suggesting that when you have this paradigm, um, unlike trying to explain away a lot of the texts in a, I would say, a super evangelical, like hair, tr- like a knee-jerk kind of a way, uh, uh, oh, every single reference is to spirit baptism. No, no, no. Oh, this is, the, gr- the Greek grammar says this and that. It does free you up to just say, oh, yeah, of course. Of course, they would just mention routinely the things that were commonly associated with the conversion process. And so I can just take it for face value, okay? It's a, I think it's a much better way to read the text. Questions about that before I kind of ta- kind of have a clean break and move on into, I press into actual baptism. Any questions? Let me ask, and, and, and if you don't want to like, you can, I don't know, some of you don't want to raise your hand, that's okay, you get nervous about that kind of thing. Uh, is the con- conversion initiation paradigm, is that helpful or is that confusing to you? Who says it's helpful? Who says the conversion initiation paradigm is helpful? Okay, who says it's confusing? Okay. Who says, eh, I don't know, I don't, have my, I don't have a good enough grasp on it to make a call. Okay. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Come ask me questions. Uh, go back and watch some of the, the Sunday schools if you haven't had an opportunity to see those. I'd love for everyone to have an understanding of that and make it'll enrich your reading of the scripture. All right. But now it is time to move on. Baptism. What is it? 
What is baptism? Let's lay out a theology of baptism together, as opposed to a method for exegeting and understanding a theological hermeneutic. What is the origin of baptism? Um, you'll notice that when the New Testament opens, John the baptizer, which is what it is in Greek, um, is baptizing people. So it didn't start with Jesus. Okay. Where on earth did that come from? This is a this is a mystery in scholarship. What exactly are we to make of baptism? Because it certainly is not in the old is not something that's commanded in the Old Testament either. Nowhere in the Old Testament is there baptism. And yet, see John the Baptist baptizing, and then Jesus is just seems perfectly fine with adopting this as a central part of um, coming into the kingdom of God. Uh, one suggestion is that it has a background in the Jewish mikvah, which would be a little ceremonial washing tub um, that you would pure, ritually purify yourself. They found a lot of these in archaeological digs. If you're a rich person, you could even have one at your house. It could be outside the temples. And the idea is you would go down into the water, do a ceremonial washing uh, before you I did your sacrifices or whatever the case may be. But the problem with that suggestion is that uh, John's baptism seems to be a one-time thing. It seems to be like some kind of initiation into something, and it doesn't seem to be just a one of many ritual purification processes, um, which leads a lot of people to say that we simply do not know the origin of pre-Christian baptism, and that John, to all appearances, is doing something, uh, and I'm not saying that he made it up, but that we don't have a firm precedent for in this kind of baptism. Uh, but it is nevertheless the case that Jesus capitalized on this pre-existent ceremony as it's been developed, but he adds his own twist to it. And twist is maybe putting it lightly. He redefines what baptism actually is. What, what does baptism mean? Well, the Greek word baptizo most commonly means to dip or immerse. In seminary, I had to read this massive book called Baptism. And all it was was analysis of the word baptizo in Greek literature. There are a million different uses for it, just like we can use words a million different ways as language develops. But by far, what it commonly meant is if you would have said it, it meant to dip. Um, or to immerse. Bap now listen to this. This is going to surprise some of you who have, who have read a lot. Baptism by immersion, not to necessarily be confused with credo-baptism, meaning believer's baptism, was the most common form of baptism for over a thousand years. Infants could be and were immersed. With the, with the, and with the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, they are still baptizing infants by immersion. Immersion. You doubt me? Do not doubt me. Okay? You can go on YouTube and watch the videos. You can watch these little guys getting dipped, like head in. One, two, I mean, the triple dip. Uh, Trinity. I mean, you can go on, You can if you want to YouTube, not now. Not now. Eastern Orthodox Infant Baptism. Look at a couple of those. It's, it looks crazy, honestly. But 
immersion. Even Thomas Aquinas, what is he, uh, 13th century, 12th century? It's embarrassing. I should know that. Uh, 12th century, we're going to go with uh, 13th century. We're going to go with 12th century. Thomas Aquinas um, say, even mentions that immersion is uh, the most common form. So baptizo, to immerse, to uh, dip, has been the most, or was, is, I don't know what it is, the I don't know what the split is now, but it certainly was the most common form of baptism for over a thousand, for over a thousand years. Um, and so here's what I want to do here. I want to get some readers here to understand, uh, just like we did with the paradigm, I want to get some readers here so you hear the text yourself, you don't hear me, hear me just telling you what these things are, and I want to walk through a couple of these together. So uh, let's get a couple, let's get a couple of readers, uh, uh, let's start with Acts. No, yeah, I'll read Acts two thirty-eight. I'll read. I'll take that passage. But can we have someone else read Acts ten forty-four through forty-eight? Asher, Asher. Um, let's have someone read Mark one four. Who wants to read Mark one four? Michael, and then Acts twenty-two sixteen. Who can read Acts twenty-two sixteen? All right, James, and then we'll we'll pause and we'll come back here. We don't know exactly what where baptism came from. But even with John, it seems to be that it was an initiation into a new way of, of doing things, particularly related to the forgiveness of sins. And obviously, uh, despite the fact that the exact procedure doesn't have precedent in the Old Testament, uh, the ritual, ritual washings would definitely be in the context against which baptism would have been understood. Okay, if you're talking with Jewish people, a tradition that emerged out of the Jewish community that had Jewish ceremonial washings with water, baptism would have been understood in the context of a would have, of some kind of cleansing, and and that's going to take specific shape in the New Testament. Okay, so turn with me to Acts two thirty seven and thirty eight. Uh, this is a, a very critical text for this discussion, one that we will come back to. Uh, essentially, Peter is giving his speech at Pentecost, and he says at the end, let all the, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's what he tells them. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So they've heard them say this. They're convicted over this. And Peter tells them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Okay? So certainly in this context, we get our first clue about, I say we don't get our, we don't get our first clue. I think we get our first clue in Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus is going to um, command what it is. But certainly here you have baptism pictured as a public instance of faith and repentance uh, into the Lord Jesus Christ. They're cut to the heart. They believe what has been said, obviously, 
And then Peter says, in response to have being cut to the heart, being convicted about who this Christ is and what we've done. I mean, what, if you're telling me, well, I'm hearing you right. You're saying this is a Christ and we killed him. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, I'm cut to the heart. I need to, what, how do we, what, what on earth are we supposed to do? How do I make this right? And he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A public profession of faith and repentance. Again, this will be a passage that we come back to. Presbyterians have an interest in this passage. The, of the forgiveness of sins clause is going to be relevant. We'll come back. But, but first, the most obvious observation here is that baptism, public profession of faith and repentance. Okay, Acts chapter 10, 44 through 48. Okay, excellent. So you, there's a little bit baked into here in the just as we have, because the just as we have assumes some of the stuff that we actually just read, that same kind of procedure. So this is slipping some of this in, but the idea is this is another instance of this is what happens uh, once you hear the word of God. Um, and is even backing up to verse 43, to him, all to him that is Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins through his name, verse 43. And then while he was still saying these things, in other words, Peter is preaching the gospel. He's talking about the Messiah, talking about these things, talking about Jesus rising from the dead, saying that, and he commanded us to preach to the people and testify. Why he was saying that, the Holy Spirit falls on uh, these people. These people believe. They're all in. They're all in. And right there... Can anyone prevent these people from being baptized? I mean, goodness gracious, it's hard for us to understand how bizarre maybe that would have been, maybe unexpected for them. But the Gentiles coming in, again, was a big deal. That's why there's going to be the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Be like, what are we supposed to do about this? But in that immediate context, he's saying, these people have the Spirit. They just repented and believed the gospel. We just shared with them about Jesus. They're like, um, I mean, when we did this as Jews, we, we were baptized. Like, can anyone prevent, can anyone say that they shouldn't be baptized? The answer is no. No, absolutely not. And, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. So two texts there that I want to suggest mention that baptism is a visible, public profession of faith in Repentance. You don't get the picture in either one of these, by the way, that there was like, okay, time for you to be baptized. All right, let's go to the baptism closet, right? And there's like a secret curtain behind the church. And that's, you know, this idea is this is public. It is right there. And it is accordance with your repentance um, and your faith uh, testifying to your new life in Christ. Okay, the uh, forgiveness of sin and cleansing. I told you that the, there's going to be the Old Testament background of cleansing rites involving water that baptism would have been understood against. If you were a Jew and you were heard, and you heard about a, a religious rite, R-I-T-E, again, just to be clear, that involved 
water, and that involved everyone, everyone, every single person would have thought uh, religious ceremonial washing in the Jewish um, in Jewish thought, and that certainly informs the background of cleansing rites involving water. Let me just read one of them. I'm, if you want to write these down, feel free. I'm just going to read one of them so you don't think I'm making it up. From Exodus 30. Very briefly here. Okay, yeah, so here's the, that's right, the mention of the bronze basin. So the Lord says to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water, so they shall not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The idea of ceremonial washing informs was the background context up against which baptism is going to be understood. Everyone would have associated with forgiveness and uh, cleansing because it would have been associated with something like the priesthood who had to prepare themselves um, to minister in the Holy of Holies. Okay, having said that though, who's got Mark 1 4 for me? Yeah. Okay, notice. So Jesus, the reason I'm, well, the reason I had Michael read that one is because, uh, first of all, the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins um, clearly suggests, it seems, that the repentance is what forgives. The repentance leads to forgiveness of sins, and that's why you're baptized. That's what it seems to suggest. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. The baptism didn't secure repentance, okay? No, he's saying you have to repent in order to be baptized, uh, and you see all the for, the forgiveness of sins all together here. Baptism, repentance, forgiveness of sins, certainly in another passage where uh, where uh, Jesus will contrast his baptism to the baptism of John, but it's not as though Jesus comes in and says, well, my baptism's not for repentance. That's not what he says. He says that there's going to be something else that I'm going to baptize you with. And it's not going. he's not going to throw out a command to be baptized with water either. He just said there's going to be something else introduced. There's going to be something else introduced. Okay, Acts 22, 16. Okay, now this is one, again, without our, some of our paradigm, I think this is one of those verses that causes people theological gas, okay? Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It's like, oh, wait a second, what are you saying? That baptism is what, you know, washes away someone's sins? No, I'm not saying that baptism is what washes away someone's sins in the contemporary lingo of the 21st century, but certainly that is what it was associated with. Um, that is part of what baptism is would have pictured. Again, a sign of forgiveness, a sign of cleansing. And it talks about calling on his name in order to do that. Okay? So baptism, a visible public profession of faith and repentance, a sign of forgiveness and cleansing. Let's move on with a couple more, a couple more readers, okay? A sign of union with Christ in a new life. This one probably has the most. So here's four readers just for this one point, okay? Romans 6, 3 and 4. 
Romans 6, 3 and 4. Who wants to do that one? Crystal. Uh, Galatians 3, 27. Galatians 3, 27. Yes, Josh. Alex. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. And then 1 Peter 3, 21. 1 Peter 3, 21. Asher wants to read again. Yes. All right. I'm going to dole out three more and then we'll pause again. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Who wants to read? Ben Scott. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Titus 3, 4 and 5. Titus 3, 4 and 5. Going once. Michael. And then finally, Matthew 28, 29 through 20. Or someone can quote it for me. Either one. Someone can read the Great Commission or quote it for me. All right, we'll figure that out when we get there. All right, Romans 6, 3, and 4. Uh, whoever's got that, read with a loud voice and a little velocity, and everyone listen very carefully how baptism uh, uh, pictures the death and being risen, uh, excuse me, being dead in sin, being risen with Christ, and that in Christ language is the union with Christ, theology of union with Christ in the New Testament. All right, Romans 6, 3, and 4. Excellent. So you see how closely baptism is associated, and there's even the picture there. I go into the waters, right, and then I rise out of the water, uh, and I'm buried. What am I doing? I am being associated with the death and burial of Christ, and then the resurrection of Christ, that with Christ, in Christ language, a sign of union with Christ. Galatians 3.27. Okay, that idea of putting on Christ, Christ with me, Christ in me, uh, the, the hope of glory. And I, if I'm baptized into Christ, without the caveats of my paradigm here, I'm just because now I don't need to just continue to clarify that every single time we mention a verse, um, you have been united with Christ. That's what the with Christ in Christ language is. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In him also. Great. A lot of in Christ, with Christ language here. It's a circumcision that's been done on my heart with human hands. My baptism expresses that. I am dying to sin, identifying with the death of Christ, the death he died to sin, even though it was unjust, raised to life through faith, not just passing through uh, water. And so the baptism, again, is a sign of that union with Christ. And then 1 Peter 3, 21, the one that perhaps causes the most people the most theological gas, but it shouldn't. Go ahead, Asher. Conscience. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, so it's talking about, so you, have, you get this very controversial passage uh, about the spirits in prison. Thankfully, that's not what I'm talking about this morning. They didn't obey. God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, which in which a few were brought safely through water. Now, baptism, and the word is antitupos here, which is the antitype. Okay, so so you have, what he's saying is you had the, uh, the, the um, 
which corresponds to this, they were brought safely through the water. Being brought safely through water, okay, that's a type. There's an anti-type, okay? If if you missed the typology part of our biblical framework thing, go back. This is something that corresponds to it, except there is escalation. It, it, It culminates in one way or another in Christ. And it's saying that baptism is the fulfillment. It pictures this, but in a fuller way, to put it really uh, uh, to put it crudely, I guess, in a cut-down fashion. And it says, baptism, which corresponds to this, which is the anti-type of these people being brought safely through water, now saves you. Now again, I just want to point out that if we're honoring the imagery of the context, the, the water did not save Noah. That's what he got saved from, okay? The water did not save... Everyone say it with me. The water did not save Noah. Okay, all right, so... The water did not save Noah. What saved Noah is being safely brought through the water. And then Peter makes a clarification here. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Now, this is not the Apostle Paul, because your your mind might have said, oh, wait a second. He's saying that it doesn't remove sin from your flesh. That's That's not this phrase. That's why it doesn't translate it that way. Okay? That's why it has body here. It doesn't have flesh, and it has dirt instead of sin. Okay? It's saying, it's clarifying something. Okay, but, but surely people in Peter's time didn't think that taking a bath could save your soul. So what is he clarifying? Why is he bringing, why is he bringing a, a focus into this aspect of it? Well, I think, it's, I think what he's talking about, the reason he's talking about not as removal of dirt from the body is he is focusing down in on the actual washing part that goes into getting wet and being baptized. He's saying, listen, here's what does not save you, the water washing over your skin. Okay, the water going over your skin as an act doesn't do anything. Okay, but that that's not the part that saves you. But as an here's how it saves you. Then how is this? How is the Noah example when they were brought safely through water? How does baptism? How is that the anti-type of that? It's an anti-type because baptism going through water is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is someone who has repented and believed the gospel, who has trusted in Christ. Um, who has been, to use, to, to dip into Paul's language at this point, who has been declared right with God, and, um, and, and, and as an appeal to God, cleanse my heart, I want to have a clear conscience before you, that is the sense in which baptism, being brought through the, going through the waters of baptism, saves. It saves in a typological way, because what it does is it has pictures someone who is in Christ, going through the water and being delivered through it. Okay? Any questions about that? So if you if you if you struggle with the language of this one, uh, uh, I would just say just go back to the Noah and the ark and just remember what do you need to remember? The water didn't save Noah. If this is the anti-type to this type back here, it is uh, uh, eight persons were brought safely through water. Being brought through water is the type Baptism is the anti-type. Not, I go through water, but it's not the washing off of the dirt that happens that saves me. It's the pledge of the good conscience okay, expressed as I come through that water, of course, associated with the conversion process. Okay? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so a visible corollary to, so we have three now. Visible public profession of faith and repentance, a sign of forgiveness and cleaning, a sign of union with Christ and new life, And then we're going to have a visible corollary to the baptism 
of the Holy Spirit. Who's got, who did I say is going to read 1 Corinthians 12, 13? Yes, Ben Scott, go ahead. Okay, so we have in the people, this is one of those ones where people are like, oh, wait a second, we were all baptized. So if we're all baptized into one body, does that mean that it has to be, this means it has to be spirit baptism because then this person who wasn't baptized wouldn't mean it's like, whoa, 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 time out, time out, getting way, way ahead of yourself. There's one baptism, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, Paul says. In one spirit, we were baptized into a body. We were made to drink of one spirit, obviously, uh, not literally, but figuratively here. And therefore, baptism seems to be, regardless of even how you cut it up in your own mind in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, a visible corollary to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that would make sense. I mean, remember, baptism by itself is to dip or immerse. So I get dipped and immersed in the Holy Spirit, and then I get dipped or immersed physically, picturing that as a visible corollary. Okay? All right, Titus 3, 4 and 5. This is another washing passage. Okay, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So I, I met a delightful guy this, this, this week at a pastor's fraternal. Uh, who is a reformed, super, a very conservative, reformed Anglican rector at St. Patrick's, that's not cathedral, St. Patrick's something, down the road from my house. He's a five-point Calvinist, cannot stand that his church has a, he's trying to get pictures off the wall in his church. He can't stand it. He's a J.I. Packer, J.C. Ryle Anglican, really sharp guy. The difference between the Anglican view of infant baptism and the Presbyterian view of infant baptism, anybody know? I asked him this because I didn't know. I said, I'm about to teach on this. It'd be nice to get, get like someone who actually knows the answer. Close, close, but no, they don't think they receive the Holy Spirit. But what they do believe, um, it, they, um, I didn't mean to laugh, they, they, what well, they do believe is that at an infant baptism, uh, original sin is washed away. That's, what, that's the difference. They do believe it is primary, primarily, like our Presbyterian friends, a sign of the covenant. But they believe that original sin is washed away. And you say, well, what does that even do? Like, what does that do for you exactly? It paves the way for regeneration later, where God has to sovereignly call you out of darkness. And if you think, well, I'm not really sure like, how that works, that's okay. I'm not sure how that works either. Oh, might go out. Oh, it's back. Uh, he, speci he specifically quoted uh, this passage when he talks about the washing of um, renewal and the Holy Spirit. Um, as so, but again, notice in order to get that the water actually does something here, it doesn't say anything about original sin, folks. There, if everyone's reading the same Bible, like, it doesn't say anything about that at all, whatsoever, um, and. And it intimately connects it with the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which they don't believe happens at, uh, at baptism. So I'm just saying, sometimes when you try to get these, uh, this, it's the water that actually accomplishes this particular thing. I think you end up having to lean much more heavily on tradition, which we're going to talk about that in a little bit as well. But certainly, all of that, Tyler's um, interesting little side notes 
aside, we certainly have another case where you have a visible corollary to baptism of the Holy Spirit, washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. I happen to think that most people would have con uh, thought connected washing of regeneration to baptism, the, washes, the washing that is associated with, with regeneration. I don't understand that to mean the washing that regenerated your heart before God for all the reasons that I've already given. I, I don't think that anyone, I, I don't strain and say, okay, no, he's just saying the same thing twice. Washing of regeneration is the Holy Spirit, and then the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What's that? Uh, well, it's the same thing. He just repeated himself uh, immediately. I'm fine with that. Okay, visible corollary to baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm skipping over all of the passages that mention baptism of the Spirit because they're all of them, uh, with the exception of 1 Corinthians 12, 13. I believe there are six instances. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is the exception. The other five, if I'm not mistaken, all are just contrasting the baptism of Jesus with the baptism of John. Okay, where it's talking about contrast between he, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit uh, and fire. Okay, in Acts, between Acts and the Gospels, there are five such instances. So baptism of the Spirit certainly is a very legitimate category, very legitimate category. It's not that people are trying to spiritualize passages. Jesus said that one of the defining things of his ministry, in contrast to what had come before, that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit, and no one had ever done that before. Okay, so it is is critical to realize that that's a legitimate category, and it's not just evangelicals pining to get out of sacerdotalism. All right, Matthew 28, 29 through uh, 30. Oh yeah, we didn't assign that. No one wanted to read that. All right, who wants to who wants to read the who wants to tell me the Great Commission? Uh, yes, Ben. No, Ben's going to tell us. Yeah, oh, sorry, I put the wrong, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, 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 the, the, uh, just the end there. I put the wrong numbers there, 29 through 20. All apart heaven and on earth, and give them to me. Go Okay, so here again is, is this. The reason I put this one at the end is because it kind of goes on the heels as a package deal with what has already come before it. This is Jesus, who's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, but who is now giving a command to baptize people with water. So he does not understand, very critical, he does not understand the baptism of the Spirit to replace baptism with water. He redefines what John's baptism is, what it signifies. Okay, and then he baptizes with the Spirit, but then again commands his own version of water baptism. Okay, finally, I'm just we're at time, so let me just point this out because Alex, I believe, already read it or whoever someone read it. Uh, a sign and entry right of the new covenant. This one is probably one that everyone already knew, anyways, particularly coming out of the Old Testament where you had circumcision, uh, baptism in a sense, circumcision of the heart fulfills. Circumcision there in uh, Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Um, this is a circumcision done that without hands, and that is expressed by baptism. And what I'm suggesting, again, is that everyone would have understood, and in fact, everyone in the Christian tradition, almost without exception across denominations, just understands rightly that, uh, that baptism is the visible sign and entry right of the new covenant. 
Now, does baptism, is it, does it replace circumcision? Uh, I would say that's not a good question. And to understand why that's not a good question, we'll have to come back next time. Uh, it's, con it's a confusing question. The answer yes or no is not a helpful answer. It just kind of depends what you mean, what you mean by that. Thank you for the extra two minutes. Uh, let's, let's conclude in prayer. God, uh, thank you for giving us baptism, for giving us this visible expression of death to Christ, union with Christ, both in death to sin, but also uh, being raised to live a resurrected life. This washing of regeneration, Lord, uh, we pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would uh, cause even some of our young people, maybe they've been sitting around, they believed the gospel for a long time, and it's time for them to be baptized. Maybe so. Would you work in our church to affect obedience in the hearts of those uh, who perhaps need to be obedient in this area? We ask for mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.